so welcome. Um, let me tell you just a little bit about where this one-line title comes from, and then we're going to sit together a little bit, and I'm going to ask you to consider some points about your sitting. Um, the author of this line, uh, which is part of a longer uh, poem, actually, uh, was named Ikkyu Sojun, which uh, translates as one pause, crazy cloud. Um, and he certainly manifested the crazy cloud part of his name. He was a Zen Buddhist priest <coughs> in 15th century Japan and um, tended to color outside the lines quite a bit. He uh, was a poet, a um, shakuhachi uh, player, a bamboo flute player, uh, had studied koans deeply, uh, and had spent a lot of time, um, studied, spent much of his time as a wanderer around Japan. Um, this line, how can I be lost when I don't know where I'm going, um, has an interesting teaching to it because it uh, challenges this idea that we actually know where we're going. You know, that we're actually in control of the direction of our lives. And that often causes us more consternation uh, than peace and joy. Uh, because often we find that life doesn't go in the direction that we think it should or want it to. Um, and that includes the life that we are. So when people have ideas or we have ideas about ourselves, they have ideas about us in terms of the direction that we should be taking in our life, um, there's, a, there's a really powerful assumption there, you know, that there's actually somebody there running the show. Now, if you're hearing this the, for the first time, you may be thinking, well, of course I'm running the show. If I'm not running the show... Who's running it? So with that, I'm going to ask you to uh, get comfortable. You don't have to sit in any particular way to do this uh, next piece. Uh, you can have your eyes open or closed um, and uh, sit comfortably. Uh, take note of what your direct experience is of being alive right now. What is it that lets you know you're here? And I'm not asking you to think about that. Uh, I'm not asking you to tell yourself a story about that or even use words. What's your direct experience? of being alive here now. So it's easy to notice what we call sound. It's easy to notice what we call uh, sensation found in the contact between the body and whatever we're sitting on. The sensation is created by the contact between the arms or the hands and the legs. And whether your eyes are closed or slightly open, there's something that's happening and known at what we call the eyes. There's a sense of beingness. And that doesn't have to do with the so-called boundaries of the physical body. 
because particularly if your eyes are closed and you bring some attention to where you think your body is, you'll find, for example, that it's impossible to tell the exact boundary between uh, your bottom and what you're sitting on. So there's this sense of energy, we could call it. But you may notice that whatever words uh, we've learned to use to point to this experience of being alive, none of those words quite captures the lively experience of beingness. And you may notice that that beingness is registered as things changing. The variability of the sound of the fan the movement of the air on the skin. How the breath changes. If we attend carefully, our direct experience is not of a solid thing but rather an indefinable field of sensations sounds moving and being known You also may notice that all of this is happening in a so-called now. There's no sense of this happening in a future, nor in a past. This happening is happening now. And even when thoughts may arise about a past or a future, they too are only happening now. And those thoughts about a future are not the future. Those thoughts about the past are not the past. even strongly emotionally charged thoughts and stories which rouse the body and seem to recreate the past or the future in the present, there is still only what is happening, moving, unfolding here now. So take a couple of minutes to just notice how this expresses itself, this here-nowness. Sounds that register, sensations that become apparent, thoughts that float through the mind. Just sit for a couple of minutes as this unfolding happening
in the midst of this uh, timeless, so-called present. Do you notice that you don't predict the next thought that arises? That whatever thoughts may arise, arise not by choice. Or the next sensation that becomes apparent. You don't see it coming until it's here. The next sound that comes to the ear. Can you predict the next word that you'll hear? like rhinoceros? unable to predict anything that appears in this moment and unable to predict when it disappears or how long it hangs around. And so I'd ask you, are you doing anything at all in this moment to make any of this happen? To make the breath happen, to make hearing happen, to make the arising of thoughts happen, the arising and passing of sensations happen. All of the indications that we're actually alive. Can you find a you making any of this happen? And yet it's impossible to say that nothing is happening. So what might that suggest to you about being the life you are? that you don't choose what arises,
You don't choose how the breath breathes, the heart beats, the mind thinks, the ears hear. we've learned to talk to ourselves about the life we are. And we've been conditioned with that education for many, many years. It's often a source of great pain, sometimes shame, loneliness, self-criticism and judgment. Notice what happens right now in this moment if you ask yourself the question, what is this if there is no thinking? And rest at the end of that question. What is your direct, immediate experience of being alive? When there is no thinking, if you allow just for a while for stories not to apply, thinking these stories sure thinking is useful i mean we'd be we'd be in deep trouble without it but apparently we're in deep trouble with it um you know and we're always using the tool that creates the problem to solve the problem and not seeing the sort of endless regress of that situation um and so if we're invited to simply be with how we are as we are in the moment, if we allow ourselves to suspend even briefly um, these deeply conditioned stories that are overlays, they're not, they're, you know, it's like, oh, there goes a car. That's shorthand that, that's useful, particularly if I say there's a car coming, don't step out in the street. I mean, we immediately knows what, know what's happening. But in terms of what that tells us about momentum, speed, the kind of car, who's driving it, how did it get here, etc., it doesn't anyways near touch the complexity, the mystery of what that word points to. And in, in contemplative practice, the invitation is continuously to see the stories, to see the, the toll that so many of these stories take on us and how they can be so deeply misleading 
in our relationships. And to, to go a little deeper. You know, to, to begin to ask, well, if this story is only a somewhat useful approximation of what's actually happening, what happens if I drop the story and actually be with what's actually happening and see where that begins to unfold and take me? It's a question of how the mind relates to itself in terms of thinking. You know, the, the uh, I hate to do this, you know, is a, you know, there's a, there's a belief thought in there someplace. There's a, there's a deeper story than that. Um, this isn't worth my time. I mean, I don't know what your, your story underlying that might be. Um, but there's always a story underneath the story. And often those those touch in touch us in very very deep ways uh, that go back, you know, a long time. And some of this work is beginning to let those stories unravel because they are confusing in terms of what's actually happening. You know, I had an interesting experience coming in. I actually thought I had a talk tonight. And then I was thinking, you know, I don't, I don't really kind of like, it doesn't seem to hang together. I'm not sure really what I want to get across. And the line popped up. How can I be lost if I don't know where I'm going? Well, the not knowing where I'm going had some potential ramifications whoa, what if I get up here and I got nothing? Right? How am I going to look then? How am I going to feel about that then? You know? And, and to simply let that unfold and feel the discomfort of that. I mean, this is not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> okay? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy at the party who's looking for one like-minded person in the room that I can hang out with for the evening. Okay? That would be me. So if you see me get you in your sights at a party sometime, that's what I'm up to. Um, this kind of thing, you know, I, can, I get into it, and I, I end up loving it because I lose track of me, you know, in these kinds of encounters. But the getting ready is not as painful as it used to be. But imagine walking into to something like this, and I've had this experience with Dharma talks at IMS and other talks I've given, that I'll start thinking, wow, this just doesn't quite hold together. And then to what extent am I able to trust that I can say something and we will do this talk together, it's not just about me. You know, that we'll co-create something here that's better than any talk that I could put together, hopefully. And so if I can, you know, if I can, and this is where part of our practice, I think, informs this. Sitting is uncomfortable. Okay, I mean, anybody who sits for any length of time and sits still, knows it's really uncomfortable. And if you're working with somebody like me, who's watching somebody squirm a lot, you know, I'm going to, I'm at some point, I'm going to ask them to sit still. And I'm, I'm going to explain that, why. There's a reason for that. Right? Because we develop an, a tolerance to sit with, be with the discomforts that come with being alive. It's uncomfortable a lot of the time being in a human body. That just goes with the territory. To then learn to sit with the stories that inflame that, that's a different level of demand characteristic, if you will. That bump, bumps the bar up a bit. 
Because all of us have this urge to get away from discomfort. And so when it comes up in our sitting or in our life, often we'll say, well, this is wrong. It needs to be fixed. I'm wrong. I need to be fixed. Life shouldn't be uncomfortable. Which is, I just saw somebody kind of chuckle at that. Yeah, it's hilarious, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. Life shouldn't be uncomfortable? Well, I shouldn't be 72. I mean, how ridiculous can we get here, right? Or my, you know, my back shouldn't hurt. Or my daughter shouldn't be moving from Cambridge to Chicago. It's like, ah, really? This, this whole thing about having an idea about what should be creates enormous suffering for ourselves. And, and practice is often about noticing how we turn away from our life. You know, the, the, there's a saying that the great way is not difficult for those who don't cling to their preferences. We're all going to have preferences. I would choose to be 48, right? With a back that doesn't, you know, say I'm still here every morning, you know? Um, but that's not how it works. And we can, you know, it's a wonderful practice to just notice throughout the day where we're fighting our life. You know, whether it's physically uncomfortable or emotionally uncomfortable or it's not showing up the way we want it to, that's our practice. That is our practice. It's not about making everything feel good or developing deep states of concentration where we're really calm and, you know, everything falls away and we're like, you know, one with everything, whatever that means. Right? Because that fall, that, that's not sustainable. That won't help you in your real life. You know, when you're, when you're up against the difficulties of being alive. What will help you is a practice within which you increase your natural ability, your capacity, to be with anything and everything. And what gets in the way of that? The stories. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I shouldn't have to do this. That's, that's the edge of suffering. Life hurts. There's just no way around. It's also joyful and mysterious and inexplicable and wondrous and horrendous. I mean, everything on the scale. That's life. It's our stories about it that create an extra layer of difficulty. But when you ask yourself a question like, am I doing anything to make this happen? I mean, the answer pretty clearly, if you really look at it closely, is no. And yet there's this, 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 I, I don't like words like mysterious, but it's, it's like, it's incomprehensible. I mean, you really can't understand with the, with the thinking mind, the, the variety, the, the incredible changingness, the unpredictability, the, the awe that comes from being this, you know, and it's happening all the time, and we don't know where it's going. Larry, Larry Rosenberg, who I know many of you know, used to tell a joke uh, on retreats about um, a, a rabbi in a small village, and, you know, Larry can... Larry can ham it up. He's like got the accent, and he really does this. So I'm just going to tell you the story, like a white guy. Um, he, uh, he, this rabbi is in a small Polish village, and you know, living under very difficult circumstances. And he goes out for a walk in the morning, and he's walking down the street, and the gendarme, the the cop, you know, says, "Hey, rabbi, where are you going?" And he says, "I don't know." And the cop goes, what do you mean you don't know where you're going? I don't know where I'm going. And the cop says, everybody knows where they're going. Are you giving you being a wise guy here? I really don't know where I'm going. So he grabs him by the collar and grabs him by the back of the cake, 
takes him to the jail, throws him in the cell, slams the door behind him, and turns to walk out, and he hears this small voice behind, see, I really didn't know where I was going. <laughs> and that's us. You know, Rumi's got this incredible poem about, and I can't, I'm going to butcher it, but I'll just paraphrase a little bit of it. Basically, beware of what you ask for. Um, you shoot the arrow right, it goes left. You set the trap for somebody else, you fall in it. And he goes on and on with this. Right? The future is unpredictable. I mean, we can't even predict the next thought that's going to come to our mind. The next reactivity piece that gets triggered you know, we don't, we don't get to decide when our reflexes jerk, you know, when our reactivity comes up. How is that a choice? You know, somebody cuts you off in traffic, your reflex jerks, your adrenaline pumps. And depending on what your conditioning is, usually there are words either spoken silently or externally that flow from that. Right? And everybody has that experience. And you won't, you will not, you will never not have that, that experience. You know, it's like, it's like everything else about living in a body. We don't own this body. You know, I was, I was talking with Larry the other day, and it's like, he's got this thing going wrong physically, and that thing going wrong physically, and it sucks to get old. You know, it does. And, I don't care how much you sit, you know, how many awakenings you have, you're not going to pass on that. It's not, it's not that we can control this stuff. I mean, otherwise you'd be looking at a, seven, a guy who's 48 with 72 years of experience and a good back, right? And I'm sure everyone in this room would be picking and choosing if you could. Right? We don't get that choice. If we're lucky enough to stumble into a real practice, we can learn how to begin to appreciate the actual facts of being alive. Some of those are quite sobering. And our practice asks us to keep intimate company with those. Some of those facts are mind-blowing and heart-opening. And our practice asks us to stay with those. You know, it's the, it's the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And nobody gets a pass on those. I think the role of our actions in this moment are unknowable because they arise without choice. You know, if, if again, if we're lucky enough to stumble into a, a practice and we're deeply dedicated to it, the mind develops a somewhat different default system. So that if, you know, if I'm cut off in traffic, you know, the, the old default system that, you know, one can easily walk around on is yelling at the person and flipping them off, right? I don't know anybody that actually chooses to do that. Um, I have noticed in my own life and the life of others that people who are drawn to a kind of practice that develops a kind of tolerance and capacity that's, that gives a bigger container to that reactivity, that the default, even though the, that, that urge to say, fuck you, may arise, somehow it doesn't have the juice, you know, that what, where the mind is defaulted has been to, to the watching and the experiencing of the body aroused, and no longer quite feels the need to discharge the discomfort in a way that's going to be hurtful. Now, does that then possibly create a different chain of events? No way to know, but I think it's fine to hope so. You know, I mean, I think in this day and age, I'm much less likely to get shot if I don't shoot off my mouth, you know, in the street to somebody, right? Which is a good thing for me and a good thing for them. So this is all relational. You know, it, it, I mean, everybody knows what it's like to have somebody 
you know, hold the door for them or to give them a space in traffic to come in, right? I mean, I know that if somebody's made a space for me, I'm more likely to make a space for the next person, right? And because I, I, I also enjoy, I get some real pleasure out of making space for somebody and have noticed over the years what it's like for me reactivity-wise when they don't say thank you, right? Right? So, you know, it really, these things open ourselves and our relationships in ways that are really, I think, fruitful. You know, so that's a, that's a kind of a long answer to your question, but does that make some sense? Okay, cool. Yeah, these stories are, they, they lacerate our soul. You know, I think. That kind of a story just it's so deeply painful, you know. Um, and he didn't come up with that story on his own. You know, I mean, it, 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 takes a, it takes a system to create a story like that, you know. Yeah. Mm. One, of the, one of the things that sort of modern neurological studies are showing pretty clearly is that that what shows up in behavior has a chain of neurological firings that go back to a place that can't really be quite figured out you know so uh something like that or even turning something as simple as oh i chose to turn the alarm clock off in the morning and not that's shorthand and that can be useful right but in fact, that's not what's happening. There's, there's, a, there's a, a series of literally neuronal firings that result in it appearing consciously, but the body's already in motion. You know? And then it says, says, oh, I turned off the alarm clock, or I moved my foot, or you know, whatever that might be. Now, in terms of practice, in some ways it doesn't matter. Because the, 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 the point is then to, like I said, so notice that a little more next time. Hang out with that and just notice what unfolds, right? And, and that both addresses the, the um, cultivation of restlessness or moving away too soon from something that feels unpleasant. So don't, don't fight yourself and try not to move have some interest and see what's happening. And that will give you better information. I mean, the body knows how to take care of itself. And so if you've got an injury and you know that you've got an injury, you want to pay attention to that and take care of it. It's better to move sooner rather than later. Okay? If your body is aching just from the fact of sitting, which is what happens when you sit. I mean, you, you, you look at people and, and you see them sitting here and maybe they've got the little smile on their face and, you know, they're looking all pleasant. Don't buy it. Because there's, there's a shit storm going on in there for most of us at one degree or another. Okay? And, and so... How do we stay with that? You know, when we're so deeply conditioned to jerk away from what's unpleasant. You know, don't, I can't do that. I don't want to do it. <laughs> Sitting still and being with and noticing is educational. Who amongst us does not have an itch we over-scratch? We eat too much. We watch too much TV. We drink too much. We get too much exercise. We don't get enough exercise. Right? I mean, we've all got our own, so don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, okay? Because <laughs> I'm on to me, which means I'm on to you. <laughs> and so just something as simple as sitting with the urge to move, you're going to develop a a deeper capacity, more ability to discern what is wise action, 
and a kind of wise compassion towards yourself. You know, because you're, you're staying with what's actually happening and you're letting that inform you what to do. And then it can be, you know, I think that these, these pointers that I'm pointing out, you know, about are we doing anything to make this happen, these, these kinds of things point to the Buddhist teaching of non, not self, that when you, when you ask the question like, who am I, and you really follow that, you're not going to find anybody home. Okay? I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful practice. But you, when you get to the point of, well, who asks the question, and the, the attention turns around and it sees nothing there, right? who's making this happen? And yet we can't say it's not happening. It's richly happening. Right? And there's some faculty that we call awareness, but does that really explain or describe that phenomena we use the word to point to? No, not even close. There's this knowing and this happening, and it's unfolding continuously, that's impermanence. So when, you know, and, and there are all kinds of, this is just one perspective, one sort of set of pointers that if they, you know, if they feel useful, great. If not, there are lots of pointers. But they're all, in my estimation of real practice, they're pointing at a very few things. They're pointing at looking at the actual fact of our being alive. That's impermanence and not self. And how are we actually living? Is this, is this work that we do on and off the cushion bringing us up close and personal to how we're actually living? And then are we willing and able to learn from that, from, from being with, the, with the, the fear, being with the separation, being with the loneliness, being with the judgment, being with the joy that we, that we have that we don't want to lose. Are we able to learn our life, learn about how to live our life as we meet those boundaries? And what we're going to find is it requires a strong stomach. Okay? Because nobody in this room is living a life that, um, as someone once said, we're perfect exactly as we are and we could all use a little work. You know, because we don't have to look far to find where we're fighting against our own life. That's where life is trying to teach us how to be in a different relationship with it. And our stories are often what gets in the way of that. And it doesn't mean get rid of the stories. It means have a practice where you can begin to see through those stories. And that leaves you with, you know, a, a closet full of stories, some of which will, you know, get rid of by themselves. But they're not, they're not so important anymore. They're not, they don't drive. You know, the story of I'm not good enough that gets triggered in a very deep way when somebody treats me in a certain way. That story doesn't get triggered quite as powerfully. And so how I relate to that person is going to be different. I'm not going to try and change them or get rid of them out of reactivity because I really get it's not about them. It's about what's been triggered in terms of these deep, painful, believed stories that I carry around. And those are the kinds of shifts that you look for in a practice that's bearing fruit. Deep concentration states, not particularly a fan. We all need enough stability to stay with something long enough so we can actually see what's there. You know, if we go out in the, in the night and, you know, take a quick look upside and, outside and come back in and say to our friend, yeah, it's not a very starry night out there tonight. And our friend goes out and they kind of look and they kind of, 
Hmm. Guess what they come in and they tell their friend, you better go take another look and take a little more time. You know, we have to we have to have some capacity to be with whatever is happening for it to teach us its truth. That's not, you know, those are not deep jonic states. And most of us are not going to, one, they're not necessary. And two, most of us are not drawn to them. For those of us who are drawn to them naturally, or through interest and curiosity, they can be an interesting and, if handled well, a valuable step in one's development. But I'm talking about something that's, that's plainer than that. And you don't have to do 40 years of practice to get it. You don't. You got to sit down, you got to take a look, and you've got to take a deep, extended look and acknowledge what you actually see there. So, what else? We live in a dualistic world. Um, We live in a world, in in a society, in a culture that has a certain understanding as to the rule of law and responsibility and consequences, etc. We all know that those are applied with incredible inequality. Um, and it's often a, you know, a toss-up as to how much the scale tilts towards justice and injustice, depending on the privileged status of the person on the scales. We also live in a, in a society that, that focuses a lot on blame and punishment. And it's based on that, that idea that I could, have, I could have chosen something other than holding that bank up or holding that drugstore up and shooting that kid. And I just don't, I don't see personally on close examination that holds up. And that doesn't mean that there are not consequences to actions. It would be ridiculous. I mean, it would be silly. It would be an act of denial to say that there are not consequences to to actions, to behaviors. For me, the question is, well, then how do those get addressed? If we, just for the sake of argument, say that, you know, I'm a a 16-year-old black kid and I go in and shoot somebody in a drugstore, and I get thrown into the system, I'm screwed. It's unlikely that anybody is going to come into that situation from the outside and say, you know, take a look at what led to this piece of behavior. This piece of behavior did not happen in a vacuum. It did not happen out of nowhere. There are clear, there's a clear path that this kid didn't choose to be born when he was, or the color he was, or the fact that, you know, one of his parents beat the shit out of him from, you know, the time he was a toddler to the fact that he had ADHD and he couldn't perform in school and got blamed and shamed for that, and then took the drugs to numb the agony of that, I mean, this doesn't get looked at. If that gets looked at, how that kid gets treated gets rehabilitated, if possible, is very different than, oh, he chose to do this. The fact is that he was chosen to do this, and the question is, how do we intervene now, understanding that in a way that, yes, there's a price to pay, you bet. The question is, what does that look like? And in what service is it being done? How does it address the family that lost someone on both sides of this? The kid, the person who died in the drugstore. 
How does that get held? So it's our human minds generally don't want to go there because it it creates a story of of such complexity that we want we want it done now and we're acting out of reactivity bad person killer lock them up and frankly I'll speak for myself when I my reactivity is no different than that. And I get both sides of that experience at some level. And I get how difficult it is for you or you or me or you or you to work diligently enough and courageously enough and with enough dedication to just not flip off the guy who cut you off in the parking lot or have some other reaction. This is extremely hard work. And while we're probably not going to redress the the realities of the culture that we live in, as we begin to see these greater complexities and experience how they change our own ways of relating, there's no way to tell what kind of impact we then take into the world having been changed in that way. So does that make any sense? Hopefully, you all get a sense of how incredibly lucky you are to be sitting here right now. Not because I'm here. (laughs) Okay? Each of us has been unconscionably lucky to end up here. And if we look back over the course of our life, I mean, how many of you as teenagers or 10-year-olds would have predicted you'd be sitting here and engaging in a practice that could fundamentally change the way you live? I mean, I, I wake up every day, every time I teach, and and am awed by how incredibly fortunate I am to have been drawn to this kind of practice. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't plan it. I didn't... Yeah. And luckily, I also have the sense of responsibility to care for it. And... You know, responsibility for me has always meant the ability to respond. It's not an onerous, oh, it's my responsibility. It's, so what is my ability to respond? What's getting in the way of that? And as we notice what inhibits our natural response ability, it just, it flowers in a different and unpredictable way. And, you know, you've been drawn to this practice. I've been drawn to this practice. We've all been drawn here. And we'll all be drawn to go as deeply in this as we do. And, you know, because you walk away from this and say, eh, I'm not really drawn to this anymore. That doesn't make you, you know, that's not a negative thing about you. You know, we all, look, how many, how many robins or cardinals do you see criticizing the crow because of how it sings? You see a crow envying the cardinal because of its beautiful song? You know, 
we're the only creatures that operate like this and we're destroying the friggin' planet. Right? I mean, oh, I'm a thinking being and must make me special. As a species, especially terrible. And it comes out of this judging, storytelling mind where it's like, oh, I had a thought. If I had a thought, it must be true. I'll just keep thinking it. And we end up being, you know, staggering around drunk on our own fantasy world. And so this practice is about beginning to see through that and living the life that we're each uniquely drawn to express by noticing what gets in the way of that. Life knows what to do. And it knows way better than we do. And we get in trouble when we imagine that our stories about how life ought to behave in whatever form it shows up get in the way of us having a real relationship with that. Now, that doesn't mean that if we're drawn to to working with social injustice, we won't continue to be drawn to that. We don't get to choose our passions. I mean, when was the last time you chose to be interested in what you got interested in? Right? I mean, did you choose your abilities to love math? I didn't. I barely got out of the fourth grade. If I could have chosen... Right? When was the last time that you got disinterested in something that you'd been interested in? You didn't say, I'm going to choose to get disinterested in this. We're all expressed uniquely. And this practice is about beginning to see through, through the things that we imagine are, are getting in the way of that unique expression. And then it's life living itself. And once we get that, maybe we continue to sit. Maybe we continue to show up to Dharma talks. Maybe we continue to use, read suttas. I don't know. Or maybe we don't. But we're living our life more freely. And that's what the Buddha's teachings uh, point to. That's what they point to. And if you feel like you've got a practice that's helping that along, you're lucky. You're lucky. It's helpful, regardless of what somebody tells you you ought to be doing, that uh, you let your interest draw you there. Now, it's, it's helpful to be in relationship with somebody to be talking about that because sometimes our interests are complicated. You know, that, that it's not out of the genuine interest of curiosity. It's out of the genuine curio- interest of, can I get something out of this about me? You know, can I, can I feel a little better by doing this? So I'm interested in this particular, you know, technique for that reason. Um, what I'm saying is that interest can mean different things, right? Interest can be something that's quite enlivening, right? Or it can be something that's quite narrowing in the service of me, right? It's like, I really want to get to know you so I can feel better, so I can, you know, for me. Or like, wow, you seem like an interesting guy. I'm really, you know, drawn to hanging out with you and talking with you, Right? Both can be called interest, but they're very different. I mean, I've worked with people in my clinical practice and outside my clinical practice, you know, and every now and then I would see a kid in high school or junior high whose parents would say, he's interested in nothing except playing video games. And you know, the, the, the kid really did not have any interests. And I think that's unusual. And I think that you can, you can ask people, you know, so what is it that draws you? Is it the breath that you find interesting? Is it your mind? Is it, you know, I mean, it, and then you can help people be in a relationship with that that will help the interest grow, you know. 
but I'm I'm more of a fan in, of of the sort of more natural organic movement of things, um, and also just because my mind may be drawn to something, may not be good for me. It may not, you know, just because a part of the mind, you know, wants concentration, for example. Depending on the person, that may be a useful thing or a not useful thing. You know, and just because somebody's interested in it, that's, you, you need to know more than that, you know. And, and you know, we're all going to be drawn to something. And, and I think it, in terms of practice, and I think it's important to, to explore what it is that your heart is naturally drawn to. And then find a teacher who can help you work with that in a way that's truly liberating. So, so I've got to go get some food. And uh, thank you for showing up tonight. It's been, you know, like I, I said earlier, being here is a whole lot easier for me than getting here. So uh, thank you. Have a great evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.